0: Alright, everybody, cut the shit, get fit, is about to start. This is episode 174 with Dr. Justin Farnsworth, and this was a jam-packed episode with a lot of rehab-specific stuff. So if you don't know who Justin is, he wrote an amazing article called You Are Not Your Imaging where you can find it on Dr. J- uh, John Russin's site, where he kind of goes into detail about disc injuries, knee surgeries, elbow, shoulders, everything you can imagine that, you know, gets put onto an MRI. And most of the time that MRI Tells you a story a lot worse than it is, and then people fall into this crippled state of, oh my god, I'm in pain, I can't do anything. And Justin just sheds some light on it. So here it is, Dr. Justin Farnsworth. Enjoy. Here we go. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is Dr. Justin Farnsworth. Say hello. Hey everyone, how's it going? Awesome. So I always like to start the show with super easy questions to get the thing going. And you actually just asked me this earlier before we were recording, but what do you got planned for the
1: weekend? Oh man, we got, it's, uh, it's wedding season. Nice. So we are going up to uh, one of my wife's good high school friends. We're going to the Finger Lakes up to a winery uh, for a wedding today. And that's about it. I mean, we had our our cat's birthday last night. (laughs) Four four years since we adopted her when we lived out in uh, the Tucson desert. So we had just our in-laws over, hung out. And then, you know, tomorrow, American Traditions, Football Sunday. There you go. So I'll get to watch the Cowboys (laughs) lose again.
0: (laughs) Is the Cowboys your team?
1: Yeah. Well, they're mine, and they're America's team, and they're God's team. So, I mean, you can't go wrong. (laughs) with the Cowboys you know I was I was smart here in western New York I have never been a Bills fan and I have yet to regret that decision
0: (laughs) that's awesome what's interesting about NFL for Canadians like especially where I'm from in Vancouver like we absolutely love the Seattle Seahawks to a point where we have our own like Canadian football league and we have yeah we have more people going down to see the Seahawks than seeing the BC Lions and it's funny too like I think 60% of the season ticket holders for the Seahawks are actually Canadians from Vancouver. Oh, for real? Yeah. Like, we go down there all the time. Like, there's a lot of Canadians that go down to Seattle all the time.
1: How far is that? Uh, I know it's not a far drive. I have some. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law live in Seattle. We're actually just there in a freaking gorgeous city. Yeah. Um, um, we're about two hours away, honestly. So that's really not a bad trip then. Yeah. We we got to make it out. We're going to Vancouver next time. We're going out there. We're gonna make it happen. Yeah, you might as
0: well. then I mean, like Seattle and Vancouver are very very similar. Um, you know, you get the ocean, you get the mountains, you get all the trees, lots of hiking, like everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, dude, it's it's beautiful. I love it. That part of the country, absolutely love it.
0: Awesome. Um, so another
1: easy question. What book are you currently reading? What book? Oh, actually, I'm actually reading two books. Um, I've got a book I'm reading for work, but, uh, it's kind of a leadership book. It's called convince them in 90 seconds or less. Uh, and it's a, it's a nice read. It's basically how you can like build true relationship and professional relationships with people. Um, it's good. I forget the author offhand, but I mean, some of it's simple, like make eye contact. I mean, one of the big things they talk about is know the color of the eyes of the person that you're talking to. Um, And even clinically, you'll see it actually goes a long way. It's like, put the computer away, put the pen down and just actually focus on the person who's talking to you. Um, So that is a great book we're reading there. And I think the other one is just this like super sci-fi, I wanted to do something that was not clinical, PT, anything related. I think it's called A Wise Man's Fear. And it's a trilogy. Uh, I can't even really explain what it's about, but it's awesome. Highly recommend mm. someone check it out if you have some time. They're about seven, 800-page books. So that one's taking me a while because I'll get a, after that a little bit at night before I go to bed. Um, but those are the two big things I'm reading right now.
0: Nice. So with the eye contact thing, do you yourself have like, I don't know, like for me, I remember when growing up, it was hard to like look at people in the eye because I don't know what it is. Some people just have like trouble with it.
1: Did you ever have trouble with that? Dude, it's like awkward. Right? It's, it, and it shouldn't be. So um, it was funny because I guess I consider myself a decently sociable person. So I just freaking love talking to people. And like I get into trouble in the clinic sometimes, you know, if I'm doing an initial assessment or eval, I mean, I haven't even started looking at them over half an hour into the conversation, um, which is funny. Sometimes that's a great way to build relationships with people because you get to know them past just their diagnosis. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, initially you have to like be thoughtful and actually practice looking at someone in the eyes and not looking at them in the eyes and looking down real quick and being like, oh, shoot, no, i got to look at them again. Just actually just chilling for a second and just do it. Uh, it, goes, it actually goes a long way. You'll see kind of that, that nonverbal body language. People will become a little bit more open to what you have to say, and it, it is definitely something I recommend to everyone, especially if you're working in a clinical setting and treating patients. Um, give it a try. Know the color of the eyes of the patients that you're seeing, and it'll actually go a long way in all those nonverbals.
0: Hmm. Yeah, like, what's interesting, I remember this was back in high school, like, when I was in grade 12, all the teachers kind of, like, handpicked certain students that presented leadership qualities, and then they took all of them onto, like, a leadership retreat, and I was, like, I was not into it, but the one thing that I really picked up is how to get eye contact if you're really bad at it, and this one instructor at this retreat was saying, like, if you're looking at a person, you just stare at their left eye and then just focus on their left eye and you don't feel awkward. You don't feel weird. And that's what I do all the time now. I'm like, it's so easy because you're just focusing on one thing. And I'm
1: like, man, this is smart. Yeah, it's, it's really simple. And I have yet to have someone go like, what the heck are you staring at? Yeah, I'm looking into you your know? soul. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just, don't, just don't like stare at their forehead. Just make yeah. sure you're looking at their eyes. But yeah.
0: That, that was like an Office episode. Do you watch The Office at all?
1: Uh, I used to. Yeah, it's been a while. but Like the first couple of seasons, brilliant TV.
0: Yeah, there was one uh, like prank that Jim was uh, playing on Dwight, where <laughs> Jim was looking at his like forehead the en- entire time, and Dwight. Oh like, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what, are you, that. what are you doing? Meet my eye line. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep, I remember so that.
0: Um, so yeah, let's get into it. Let's get a little intro going. But uh, can you tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry in the first place?
1: Sure. So um, I am a physical therapist. Uh, Living out in good old Rochester, New York, western side of the state. Um, I have been kind of in the sports rehab performance realm, man, as long as I can freaking remember. I've been playing soccer since I was about three years old. Uh, One of my high school coaches really got me into training, lifting, gym stuff. And I started that when I was about 12. So I actually worked at a kind of elite athlete performance training center in Rochester starting at the age of 12. And we used to see, it was a lot of the collegiate athletes, we used to have some of the Bills and Sabres drive in because we had some really cool equipment. We had uh, an ice skating treadmill. We actually get people skates on, hook them in on the harness, and they would go to town and skate. So we did a lot of over-speed training there. Uh, We had a really cool running treadmill, too. And we did that as well. So we had a lot of those programs. Um, And that kind of took me into the career I'm in now. I mean, I was a... pretty good high school collegiate athlete. Uh, I always knew I wanted to work with people in some realm. And so when I got into college, I remember my first week, I was like, I'm just going to be kind of a phys ed major. That's interesting. And I don't know, I ended up changing about four times within the first week and just settled on biology and thinking I either wanted to go to med school or I I heard of athletic training and I'd heard of physical therapy. And I wasn't really too sure which route. And I kind of just fell into the PT realm, because as most people have played sports, I ended up injured at some point and in PT and was like, hey, it is kind of a cool job. I think I could do this. Um, and then my career just kind of took off from there. I did uh, grad school for three years at Upstate Medical in Syracuse, which is where I met my wife, who's also a PT. And, um, you know, one thing that's always been interesting to me is the, the connection between physical therapy um and like rehabilitation and actually performance training and that's kind of where i've landed at now where i I try to see myself as kind of that in between between you know in acute injury rehab and then actually getting someone back into their sport or back into their activities with you know kind of a change in lifestyle and kind of this progressive you know strength weight training whatever we want to call it but not just ending you know when they get discharged from therapy
0: yeah like what's interesting about that is that when I first started in the industry, like I worked with a bunch of physios and Kairos, and you know, if your client gets injured, you're like, okay, just go see your physio. And they kind of fall into a category of like rehab purgatory, and they're not too sure when to go back to the gym. The exercises that the physio gave them were kind of like, yeah, just do clamshells and bird dogs, you'll be good to go. And they're not really getting better. And I like now there's a lot of more people kind of bridging the gap. and... How did you, like, do you have, like, a system of, like, getting someone from point A from, like, seeing you in the clinic to now I'm back into the gym and deadlifting? Do you have, like, a
1: system or something like that? That's a freaking great question. I want to say I don't – I have kind of a way that I go about it with people. I mean, the the tough thing for me is in the setting that I work in, I don't have, like, a squat rack in the clinic. Sure. You know, I don't have – I mean, the heaviest weight I have right now is a 35-pound kettlebell. All right, so we have to – somehow make do and I'm doing my best to try to you know I I run the clinic I'm at and obviously there's a financial you know thing I can't just throw a squat rack in the corner but (laughs) at some point I want to get one because I feel like everyone should be able to right break the these fundamental movements down push pull lift you know carry squat hinge walk I mean if we kind of break all those categories down really everything we do should be geared towards you know being able to rebuild function so if I have someone coming in with an acute injury you know, I was bending over lifting my you know dog yesterday or daughter and now my back hurts. Okay. I've got to be able to take them from that acute flare up to somehow preventing that from ever happening again. And so starting with, okay, let's go through some, let's make it feel better. All right. Then let's make you move better. Then once you move well, here's what you're going to do and progress yourself in the gym. Um, and it's been It's been a challenge because especially around here, trying to build connections, you know, and making sure that I know all the good personal trainers and things like that uh, has definitely been a little bit of a challenge because I want to make sure I can send that person on to, you know, another good professional, this whole spectrum of rehab to performance. I don't want me to be their last stop. Um, So right now I'm still in the process of figuring out exactly what that should kind of look like. Uh, Most of my patients that leave me will end with a gym program. Uh, And I'll make sure they check in with me. They can email me. They can video me their form. Um, But I haven't found a great system on how they can make progress, you know, outside of me in the gym, Uh, which is why I have actually started seeing uh, I'll see patients kind of uh, like non-insurance based kind of outside in the community on top of my current clinical work. So I'm actually building that kind of on the side a little bit because I think that's a excellent opportunity, especially for physical therapists who have. A lot of good knowledge in movement and mechanics. Um, Our base isn't necessarily in strength training. We don't really get a lot of that in school. I'm fortunate that I kind of came from strength training to PT versus the other way around. Um, And I'm trying to kind of fit myself in that system so that I can be a resource for people when they want to get back into the gym and say, okay, you know, I'm done with my quote unquote rehab. um, And now how can I actually make myself stronger and more resilient over time? And it can't just be here are your five PT exercises. You need to do that three times a week for three sets of 10 for the rest of your life. I mean, that's crap. That's your rehab purgatory right there versus, okay, here's your kind of maintenance program that you need to check in with maybe once a week. Uh, And then once you kind of met these markers and you kind of know what those markers are, whether it's range of motion or a certain movement, you know, you've kept that. And that's kept you kind of in this pain-free state. Now, how can we build on that foundation and get you stronger over time? And this is how we're going to do it.
0: Nice. Yeah, like, so in the clinic that I'm in, like, I met this um, Cairo where she has a huge kind of, like, oh, my Alexa's going off right now. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, So, yeah, the Cairo I work with, she's high-level hockey player. She's, like, done the FMS, SFMA, um, like, strong first certifications. Like, she's very, like, exercise-based. When I met her, I was like, holy crap, you're amazing. We need to, like, collaborate, so now what, how we structured it is like patient comes in, it's a 30-minute appointment, 15 minutes with her. Then they, she brings them out of the room and then she'll tell me, I need some sort of thoracic mobility, scapular stability, go. And then we go on to our gym floor and I kind of figure out what's going on with them. And here are three to four exercises we're going to do in a kind of like a circuit. And we're going to send these to you and I want you to do them at home and most of these patients are also like CrossFit athletes so they're very like what can I do in my warm-up so I can prep my body so I don't fuck my shit up so that that's a lot of fun like getting those kind of athletes in and we've been doing this for probably now two weeks and like everybody's really liking it and I'm like this is a lot of fun like just asking people like especially the CrossFit athletes what hurts while you're doing X, Y, and Z and then I find, like, a regression for them, and they're like, oh, this feels so much better. I'm like, yeah, this is what you need to be
1: doing. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting, the system. So I, I actually got access and had some exposure to the SFMA when I was in grad school. One of our professors nice. was all about it. And, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at kind of the PT realm, um, The it wasn't very wasn't very supported because, you know, they seemed to think it kind of just confused the heck out of the students. Um or, you know PT, you' try to make very everything kind of black and white when you're in school and you get into the world and you realize it's all just not that. It's a lot of gray and a lot of art with what we do. But at least having some sort of system like an SFMA, we're saying, look at, everyone should be able to do these certain movements and if you can't, and you, especially if you have pain and a dysfunctional movement pattern, let's break that down. let's correct that. But then that movement becomes your warm up, right? And then you move into your actual training routine versus having everyone stuck doing warm-ups for the rest of their life and always just doing these fundamental movements without actually, okay, let's get stronger. Because at some point you gotta get people stronger. And I feel like with what I do for, you know, a living, I think that's our biggest struggle as a profession is truly being able to load people appropriately over time to really get them that longevity that we should be able to give our clients.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, like when I get a new client that it's never worked out since so probably college. They come in. I get them through, like, the little consultation. And I'm like, oh, so do you have any injuries? And they're like, no, not really, but my knee hurts. My low back sometimes flares up, and this shoulder doesn't feel right. I'm like, okay, cool. And then when we start, <laughs> when we start training, like, three months down the road, I'm like, oh, so how's your knee and your back and shoulder? And they're like, ah, oh, I haven't really thought about it. And it's like, if you just build, like, a sound program where you're just focusing on fundamental movement patterns, and they do it correctly for, like... I don't know, a couple months, consistently twice a week, you automatically feel better. Like, who would have thought exercise is good for you?
1: It's it's magic. You know, there's very few people, when we're talking about the general population, not a lot of people that need this, you know, really intricate and, you know, advanced program. It really is just, I mean, even if you look at some of these very high-level, you know, athletes and lifters, some of them just move like crap. And if you actually take a couple steps back and teach them how to move foundationally well, I mean, like, I was one of them. Um, my squat when I was 18, I could move 450, 500 pounds, but it was a crappy squat looking back on it. And I've had to take 10 years, really the last five years, and just rebuild that movement and stop worrying about the load on the bar just, you know, how am I actually moving? Um, and you can take some of those people back and you just make the foundation a lot more efficient. All of a sudden, pain's better. They're actually able to get stronger. Over time, they're going to be able to move more weight and they're going to feel great. And it's... Like you said, it's not really rocket science. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, so I really want to get into the article you wrote for Dr. John Russen's uh, website because I've had clients with, like, low back pain and they get an MRI, and it says degenerative disc disease. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to be dying. I have a disease in my discs. And I'm like, No. It's okay, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like, what made you want to write an article about imaging? Like, did something, like, spark you in the clinic where you're like, okay, that's enough. I need to, like, tell the world what's going on or what What was the whole thought process behind yeah. it?
1: Yeah, sure. So it was, it was actually interesting. So the, the idea of, like, you are not your image, I want to say I've been preaching that for as long as I've been practicing. Uh, it's kind of something that's kind of ingrained in your head as a therapist, but you look at the past – you know, three to four years, there's a lot of really good research that's coming out that's demonstrating um, abnormalities on images are actually quote unquote normal. And they don't always, um, they're not always the causative factor for someone's symptom, if you will. So I want to say the big thing that took me down this pathway was I took a, it was a blue cross blue shield spine pathway class. And it was last year. And it was basically, it was Blue Cross Blue Shield, a big insurance company. And they're spending a ton of money on back pain, a ton. And they're trying to figure out why the heck are we spending so much money? I don't want to, we don't want to spend as much money. So they actually started doing research and voila, guess what? Um, Physical therapists and even chiropractors, right? We're both, we're both good at what we do. We actually save insurance companies money. So their, their big thought was we need to have primary spine providers basically people that can provide that kind of first access of care versus the old model of you know I hurt my back I'm going to go to my primary care physician okay my primary care physician is going to give me an x-ray that I probably didn't need it's going to show that I have something quote-unquote wrong Um, already I'm going to be in a state where I feel like something's wrong uh primary care physician is going to tell me, well, you have degenerative disc disease. Therefore, you need to go see a spine surgeon. Spine surgeon sees patient, um, says, okay, well, I want to get an MRI just to see how everything's going. Gives them an MRI, shows you have two or three herniated discs. Uh, we may need to do surgery, but let's send you for a couple weeks of PT first. Okay. Now imagine being that, or chiropractic, right? Now imagine being that <laughs> chiropractor or PT when you've got a patient who's now been in pain for, you know, Probably four to six to eight weeks by the freaking time they get into their physician one, x-ray done, physician two, MRI done, right? That process is inefficient. So you already have someone who's been in pain for a few weeks. You have someone who's been told there's something wrong with them, which we all know there's that psychosocial you know, model of pain where, I mean, if you're more depressed, you're going to have more pain, which is going to make you more depressed, right? And then all of a sudden, you're not moving, you're not exercising, And now you're coming to PT with the mindset of, well, this isn't going to work, but I have to do it so I can go get surgery. So that was kind of the – that's kind of the model that's been existent, especially in America for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And Blue Cross starts doing all this research, and they realize, oh, my God, you know, that people who get early MRIs actually cost us $15,000 more, and they have more disability at two years, which is pretty crazy. Everything else is the same, right? And they're getting an early image. And it's costing that much more, and they're more disabled. So there's got to be something with that first access point of care, and we have to do something better about that. Um, so we took this class, and then it kind of got me thinking, man, I'd love to put something together. And, you know, long story short, John had made a, a post, and a, I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but it was essentially something like, you're not your image, per se. Uh, and I sent him a stat about, you know, the the 99 out of 100 Uh, spinal surgeons that said they wouldn't get spine surgery and he's like dude this is freaking gold I'm like yeah I'm like I'd love to write something about this someday and he's like okay and long story short here we are and it was awesome he gave me the opportunity to do it because I really think it was eye opening for a lot of people
0: yeah like I also want to like get you to talk about like almost like the emotional side of this stuff because you know someone gets that imaging report and now maybe their pain level was at a 4 out of 10, and they read it, and now we're at a 6 out of 10 just because they're like, oh, my God, I have these discs that are bulging that are probably messing up my nerves, going down my leg, and now they're living their life where everything they do is hurting them a little bit more when in reality, probably not. Like, have you seen, like, people getting... Even going to, like, another practitioner and they use certain language... That like, oh, yeah, your low back, it's messed up, and now they're, they believe it, that they're actually worse off than what they were before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I truly feel like our language can harm our patients and our clients. Um, and there was a stat, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like the mere referral to a spine surgeon resulted in like 60% higher level of fear in people that had back pain. Right, so you're you're exactly right. Telling someone, hey, man, dude, your back is messed up. You've got disc out here, disc out there. Oh my gosh, man, this probably isn't going to get better. Versus telling someone, hey, the MRI says that you have, you know, this, this, and that. It says you have a herniation at L4-L5. You know what? Um, that's actually not that abnormal. And being able to provide statistics, you know, and I've told people many times they come in, they've had back pain, and they're like, man, my disc is out. I'm like you know, but you never had an MRI ten years ago. It could have been out ten years ago, and the research is really going to tell us that this is very—it's a very high likelihood that this isn't actually the cause of your current symptom, um, and it may have been there before. It, and that education piece, I mean, for people is huge, especially when you have people that have had, you know, chronic pain and have been through the system. They've had a surgery, or they've had an injection, they've had an epidural, they've had an ablation, they've been to therapy three times, and they still are kind of stuck in this. So my back's still not fixed, and the sex rays still tell me that I have all this stuff wrong. And I, mean, I think the reality is, more times than not, that's not the case. There are very, there are very appropriate times when people need to have surgery. And I've had patients that they went, they got back surgery, and they're doing freaking awesome. But you have to go through a really good clinical decision-making process to figure that out, and that should be a last resort. It shouldn't be a jump to it right off the bat. So, I mean, 100% the way that we talk to uh, our patients and our clients, especially on that first access point, the first person they see has such a big impact on their future. It really does. It really, really does.
0: Yeah, like because I was talking to the chiro I work with, and she said in early on in her career she was working with a patient that had – you know, poor shoulder mobility, and she just like made a little comment that like, I can't remember what she said exactly, but it kind of made the patient just feel really, really sad, almost into tears. And then I got to start seeing that same patient as when we started bridging the gap, and yeah, she has those tight shoulders, and I'm like, yep, we just have something to work on. And she's like, oh, okay, so what should we do? So it's just like, yeah. it's such a small little like way of changing it. Like you can see that there, you have poor shoulder mobility. You don't have to say it; you just be like yep, so this is what we're going to do about it. And they're like, okay, cool, let's do
1: it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And it, in a way, it's so hard to do to put uh, yourself in the other person's shoes. Because for someone like me, you know, I'll get someone coming to the clinic, and in my head I'll be like, man, that sucks. Like, you really suck at that. I'm not going to tell my patient or my client that, but that's what's going through my head. But I'm also in my head going, oh, they suck at that, but that's fine. We can fix that, right? And if you actually verbalize that to the person in front of you, and you tell the man it, that looks a little bit tight. A lot of people are going to take that a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Versus being able to tell someone, hey, this is what I see is you know wrong on an exam. Let's say uh, your shoulder's a little tight, but not a problem. We can fix that. I mean, that's why I have a job. Uh, that's why we have different interventions to get your shoulder where we need it to be, so you can you know push some weight overhead and not have pain anymore or whatever it happens to be. So that that the words that we use are are huge.
0: Um, so I think before you mentioned depression has a huge impact on pain. And I'm also wondering if you've seen people with, like, high anxiety with, say, like, low back pain and that individual tends to, like, never get better
1: because of their anxiety. Have you ever seen stuff like that? 100%. Huh. Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, I'm at a point now where I feel like when someone comes in the clinic and you kind of start seeing that that general presentation where, you know, they're kind of high and on alert, almost living in that sympathetic state all the time, even just kind of sitting in the chair in front of you. Um, and that'll usually translate into just like fear of moving. You know, we'll have someone come in, some back pain, I'm like, hey, can you touch your toes? And they kind of give you that look like, what well, you want me to touch my toes? Like, I can't do that. That hurts. You know? And um, it, it that is a challenge. That, that person that has had pain for a long time, it truly is more than just the, the physical at that point. It is a lot of kind of mental, psychological, emotional um, care as well. And that's why it's such a challenge for us to, to deal with. We can get people a lot better, but those are the people definitely take a step back. Um, and we need to treat more than just their diagnosis, right? And which is, you know, we treat everyone more than just their diagnosis, but those are especially the people where almost what you do with them is a lot less important than how you treat them, how you talk to them, how you educate them, and really just get them moving and kind of find, you know, For me, I'll I'll look at planes of motion. Can I drive this, you know, person in the sagittal plane without pain? I can. Perfect. Okay. Frontal plane hurts. Transverse plane motion hurts. Let's just do sagittal plane movements only. And then just take that, make them successful, show them, hey, you can move. And then just you kind of build from there. And all of a sudden, a lot of the other movements tend to feel a little bit better over time. But it is that initial, you know, getting over the fear of doing something for the potential that it may hurt. Uh, that is hard. It's really hard to educate people on that, because a lot of people are still stuck on, I had an x-ray, I had an MRI, it said this, and therefore, this is what I am.
0: Oh, fair enough. Um, let's talk about the perception of pain, because I find this really interesting, and I always use a story to tell other clients dealing with some sort of pain. So I have one client, and she has, I believe it's five bulging discs, and on a good day, she can do six chin-ups, She can squat heavy no problem no issues and then if she does like 3 hours of yard work yeah her back flares up and then she has to like take some time off and then mm-hmm. I have another client that has one bulging disc she sits down at her desk at at work for 15 minutes and then she gets her leg numb and has that sciatic pain but you know you'd think that the client with more bulging discs would, uh, discs would have you know more pain compared to the one but The person with the one looks at that little tingling go down her leg like the end of the world so just like the perception of like oh my god this thing is happening to me I'm like dying inside like do you see that a lot of times when people uh, I don't even know how to explain it like perception of pain is just so interesting to me like have you seen some people just have a higher pain tolerance and some people just like you know, you touch them with your hand and they are like, ow, that hurts, what are you doing? Yeah.
1: I'm like, it's it's to the point where I think the worst thing we did in medicine was make pain like the fifth vital sign or the sixth vital sign or however many that we have, whatever we added onto that. Like, And it's it's so funny you say that because it's like, what is, what is you know, a pain tolerance? I swear to God, every single patient that I've had in a PT has a high pain tolerance. they always tell you, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, you know, I'm at like a, I'm at like a eight out of 10 right now, but I've got a high pain tolerance. And I look at them and I'm like, you're an eight out of 10 right now. You do want me to call an ambulance yeah? because by the definition that I use, like you shouldn't be here right now. And they're sitting there smiling, talking to you. Right. Um, But I think, I think a couple points to to take off that is number one, um, that story you just told just goes to prove what the research tells us, which is you are not what your MRI says you are. Right. I mean, it makes sense to all of us. Well, the more I have quote unquote wrong, therefore, the more I should be in pain. Right. But if you start looking at pain science, which again, I am I want to learn a lot more about, and I'm certainly not an expert in, um, but the way that people perceive pain, it's such a complex process, you know, um, there's a study that they came out with where they're looking at it. you know, if I tell someone this is going to hurt versus if I tell someone this is going to feel good and it's the same stimulus, guess what? The person you told it was going to hurt will report significantly more discomfort then the person that you told, hey, this is not really going to hurt that much or this is going to feel pretty good. So we understand that people's perceptions of pain have, is very complex. It has to do with prior experience. may um, have to do with kind of how their personality is. You know, it, it's, it's a very complex process that even in medicine, I don't think we understand well because look at our opioid addiction that we have right now. Yeah,
0: that's for sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up, is like spinal surgery where, you know, someone's in pain for a long time and they're like, you know what, I've had enough. I'm just going to go for the surgery. In your experience with your patients have that have gone down that route, like how many of them got the surgery done and they feel better or how many of them got the surgery and their pain went down by like two points?
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to say in my career, and this number is, you know, People can debate me on this, but I want to say maybe a quarter of the people that I've seen that have gotten gone to get spine surgery end up doing what I would consider well after spine surgery. I um, want to realize there are many different types of spine surgery, right? So the, the low-hanging fruit on spine surgery is going to be your spinal fusion, right, where they go in and they just basically fuse the spine on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll see there is a very high failure rate. I've had people come in after that in more pain than they were before they had surgery, you know, which is extremely unfortunate because now all of a sudden you have anatomy has been changed so there's only so much we can do and they're in a lot more pain and you're just like oh my gosh where do where do I start with this uh, and then that being said I have had some few they they tend to be a little bit younger a little bit more kind of athletic maybe you're you know some firefighters police officers who've kind of had that acute um, you know ridiculous pain where they have pain going down their leg and it fits a clinical presentation where getting a discectomy for them would actually, you know, do well where they go and they take some of the disc material out. And they come back and they do freaking awesome. You know, I'm not sure how they're doing 10 years later, um, but at least acutely initially on, they end up doing really, really well. But I have certainly had some people and I, I've had some great clinicians I worked with when we were in the city who would see a lot of patients with back pain. And they'd come in after surgery, and they're like, "Man, this was just a peripheral nerve entrapment, and we fixed it peripherally, and you never really needed something done centrally." And um, it's unfortunate because it it happens a lot more than I think we'd like it to. And that's why I always, you know, try to educate people. Give it, give it the time. If you've had good rehab, if you've had kind of every non-invasive thing done to you, and it's still just, you know, killing you. And it's a point, it affects your everyday life. You can't exercise. You're not yourself. Okay, maybe at that point, that would be an appropriate time to let's go talk to a spine surgeon. But to jump to that is the first conclusion and not at least give it the time that it takes because, you know, lumbar discs will heal. And the larger the herniation, the more healing chance there is, which is kind of cool. But you can't just jump there first.
0: So do you ever like prescribe somebody to actually go down that route, or do you kind of just give them the information and let the patient kind of make the decision themselves?
1: Yeah, so I, I try to do my best as an educator. I always tell my patients, okay, this is your life. You have to do what is best for you. I'm going to tell you what I know, which is this, 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 and that. I'm going to tell you um, what I've experienced in my own clinical practice, And I try to provide as much information as I can. But ultimately, when it comes to patient decisions about surgery or not surgery, that is 100% up to them. And I try to, I really try not to, as passionate as I am about things, um, I try not to necessarily lead them towards one direction or another, just because I want it to be their decision. Now, if they turn on and ask me, well, you know, if you were me, what would you do? Well, shoot, I'll tell you exactly what I would do. Um, But, you know... In the interim, I just try to provide as much of the facts as I can for people. I mean, you'll be surprised. You, you pre- present information about, you know, if you're over a certain age, it's more common to find a abnormality on a spine image than it isn't. And they're like, eyes open, like, really? No one ever told me this. I didn't know that. And then they walk out of there going, man, my pain's in half right now. And I didn't even do anything. Yeah. Just told them what they had was normal. Um, do you
0: think like with your experience with like surgeons, do they kind of understand the PT world or are they kind of just on their high horse? Like, yeah, I can fix anything. Come
1: in. Uh, the, um, I think the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes to both. So I think the reality is when it comes to medicine, you're going to have really good people in each profession and you're going to have really, really crappy people in each profession. Um, the best surgeons I've ever had a chance to be around are always the most humble and the most interested in not doing surgery, honestly. Um, but again, this is an inherent problem is if I'm a patient and I want surgery, you're gonna be able to find someone who's going to do surgery. You know what I mean? If you keep kind of shopping around Google, you keep shopping around the region that you live in, you'll find someone who will do surgery on you. So that's the. I think that's the tricky part is The patients that get told by really good surgeons, well, I don't think you necessarily need surgery. If that patient's value system says, I need to have surgery to get fixed, they'll go find someone who's going to do it. And someone will do it.
0: So if you had to give, like, some advice to one of the listeners out there with some sort of pain, like, what are kind of, like, the first steps that they should implement or take or seek out if you had to give some... This this is very, like, an open-ended question, but... Sometimes I just like tangible steps for people. But if you had to give some advice for someone dealing with pain, what would it be?
1: Well, I think the the first thing was, and I'm going to steal this from John Russon because I love yeah. this rule, right? His 48 hour rule, which I've abided to with a lot of people. It's like if you hurt something today, just give it two days. Don't think about it. Don't go crazy with it. Don't load it. Just give it two days off. Okay. Now that doesn't solve your problem. Um, again, my bias is call up a exceptional rehab pro. It could be a chiropractor. Uh, It could be a physical therapist, someone who can get you a good orthopedic assessment, not a two-minute, you know, sit on the table, tell me about your pain, good, let's get an image for you, but someone who's going to give you their time and actually go through an assessment, watch you move, and try to hone in on kind of the whys. I mean, that's where I would go with that, and then let that rehab professional direct you in the path that you should be going. Um, The first step shouldn't always necessarily be, I'm in pain. I need to call my physician and get in and see them. Um, And also the primary care physicians are awesome. I know a lot of really good ones, but musculoskeletal care isn't necessarily the specialty area that they're in. So in terms of kind of like the gateway into getting you sent to the right person, if you go to a, you know, conservative rehab professional first, they're going to be able to send it to the right direction. They should have enough knowledge to say, Hey, you need to go see your PCP, or this is something I can help you with, which is going to be the answer more times than not. Or, hey, you know what, I'm going to send you out to an orthopedic because there's something else going on here that I'm not going to be able to help you with.
0: All right, fair enough. Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up is like, in your practice, like what's kind of your flow when you see a patient? Like, what do you do with them? Do you like ART? Do you use instruments? Do you, like, I can't remember in the state of New York, if you're allowed to do IMS needling, like, what do you, what do you do to make someone feel better?
1: Yeah. So it's so funny. So when I am certified in dry needling, um, New York state is one of the few States where that's actually illegal to do as a physical therapist. So I used to do it when I lived out in Arizona because it was legal and it's freaking awesome. I loved it. Um, but I guess the way that I typically look at it, I'll go kind of almost through the the gray cook method where, Essentially, if I have a patient coming in in pain, okay, first thing I want to do is try to make them feel better so then they can move better. Um, If everything just hurts, well, I'm not just going to have them move because it'll just hurt. So you kind of reset the system. So whether it's ART, which I do, whether it's instrument-assisted, which I do, um, we have some copying. We have a lot of different kind of manual techniques, which, again, I think if you look at the research, it's going to tell you, eh, not one is better than the other. And we're not so sure that manual therapy really does what we think it does. But the way I tend to use it is my patient hurts, I'm going to do this for a few minutes, they're going to feel better, and then I'm going to get them to move better. And when they can move better, that's going to be the ultimate fix to their problem. So the flow that I typically tend to, to take through the clinic is try to take their pain away temporarily through some sort of manual therapy if it's appropriate for that patient, then let's start getting them to move to work on their weak links, whether that's you know glute strength, whether that's You know, they need to start squatting a little bit more. We have to figure out how they're going to do it, whether that's teaching them how to hip hinge, whether that's teaching them how to deadlift, but essentially taking them through the fact that we push, pull, lift, carry, walk, et cetera, as humans, and they need to be good at those. Um, On the flip side of that would be, okay, if I've got someone who is a post-op, well, obviously we have certain tissue healing guidelines that we have to go through. And, you know, some people, they can't move that limb for six weeks. So you've got to basically be doing passive range of motion only, educating them, and then kind of working them through their program. But those are kind of two different pathways, kind of non-operative versus operative clients.
0: So you mentioned cupping. What's
1: your thoughts on that uh, treatment? (laughs) It's a big hickey. It's a big (laughs) hickey, That's that's what I tell my patients. Um, I have found, so I I was never really... um, too educated on it until i had a couple colleagues that were doing it um and i saw and i was their patients seem to get good results honestly i learned from them kind of a couple techniques to do it Um, i know i have another you know colleague of mine who they don't call it cupping it's called um, myofascial decompression but essentially the way i look at it is i know at least it helps people with pain Um, if we kind of look at the fact that people get a little redness on the area it makes sense that it would increase blood flow all the other techniques by which it is theoretically works, I'm not really so sure about. And it's, you know, in the grouping of manual therapy, I try to find, um, you know, what is my patient going to respond to the best. So if I've done some ART and that didn't work and I still want to do manual therapy, one, I try, you know, maybe some Graston or, you know, instrument assisted. And I try that and that really doesn't work. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can try a little bit of cupping. So that's kind of how I go about it. I don't always tend to just go to cupping and that's the number one is it's really kind of figuring out what is that patient individually going to respond to versus just everyone that comes in is going to get cupping. But I think it's a really great tool when applied appropriately for people. And I love the fact uh, that with cupping and with ART, you can get active motion from the person you're working with versus kind of just a passive lie on the table and don't really do anything for 10 to 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, like the car I work with, she loves cupping, and a lot of the patients do too because it's like, Something a little bit different, but the way she explains it is like, you know, you have a lot of nerve endings in your skin. This is going to help them settle down. And then when people hear that, they're like, oh, I already feel so much better. Right? It's like, I you know, maybe cupping is not the best research method out there, but I tell clients and patients that I see all the time, like if you find something that makes you
1: feel better, who
0: cares what the research says? Just go do it if you're going to feel better.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And of one, right? And that's where, I mean... That you got your patient in front of you and you see what they respond to, and that's based off of what does the research say, what is my experience, and then what are my patient values? So being able to combine all of those together for that person. And that's I think where we could have a whole nother you know podcast discussion on <laughs> the strengths and weaknesses of high-level research, but yeah. uh, that's where research isn't gonna help you too much.
0: Do you like using like rock tape and kin tape at all?
1: I use KT tape a lot. Um I like I like rock tape, it always sticks the best. I tend to use it for, I'll do a lot of basket weaving for swelling is what I tend to use it for. Um, For everything else, I've had some people where I've tried it, where they're just still kind of everything I've kind of thrown at them hasn't worked. Uh, They're still in pain. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to tape this just because I'm like, I'm going to see if it works. And then some people, they're like, oh my God, I walked out of here and I felt amazing. I'm like, okay, this will work for you. Not to be make it as a crutch, but we're going to use it for a few weeks just so you can feel better. And then some people, I put it on, and they're like, they come back. and The only thing they say is, I took all my hair off when I had to rip it off. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do anything for me. They're like, all right. But you got some free hair removal, and that's about it.
0: I, don't, I find with rock tape with certain individuals, it's just like because you have something on your skin, you just feel protected, and now you feel invincible. And I remember talking to another physical therapist where she did, like, a research project in school where, like, athletic tape for football players. And the research actually showed that, like, after 15 minutes of applying it, like, the structure and support actually just falls apart. But Yes, it a- does. But the athlete doesn't know that. But the athlete goes out into the field. They're like, oh, yeah, my ankle's taped. I'm, like,
1: invincible now. Yep. You know, I think what we think happens is they just get kind of that proprioceptive input whether it's through yeah. compression or whether it's through the tactile touch of the tape, people just it like wakes their brain up a little bit and they just feel quote unquote more stable. Cause I mean, you put rock tape on people. I mean, rock tape is not bracing anything, right. Or kinesio tape. We I mean, just freaking flexible as heck. Right. So people will be like, Oh, you know, you are gonna you're going to brace up my ankle. Nope. Nope. But you're going to feel stronger. It's just, it's a really weird kind of like neurological effect that happens, but it's cool. And, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking advantage of it to, again, help people feel and move better because that's all of our goals as healthcare and fitness professionals is to help people.
0: What's your opinion about, like, the company Rock Tape in general? So now they're kind of creating more courses where a trainer can get certified in Rock Tape, certified in instrument-assisted, and now uh, coaches can now get certified in, they call it Rock Pod, so their own version of cupping. Do you feel like that's taking coaches too far into the PT realm, or is it okay? Like, what what are your thoughts about it?
1: Oh, that's that is a tough question it to is, answer. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's interesting. If you would have asked me that five or six years ago, I would have been freaking furious. Like, what the hell? Like, this is my profession. Why are people trying to do what we do? And I want to say, over the past couple of years, I've calmed down a little bit, and I think I've really come to realize if, as long as you have the training. And then as long as you know how to apply that training, I mean, I think the thing that becomes a challenge is if you are a personal trainer, I mean, there are certain laws in each state that do not allow you to manipulate soft tissue, you know, so based on the intent of what you're doing, um, I think it becomes a big challenge. But I have, there's absolutely nothing wrong with people who are skilled and know how to provide a certain service within their scope and can help people. I mean I don't think there's anything wrong with that I, but I can see where you're starting to kind of you know push the limits a little bit on certain scopes of practice um, especially based on if you have someone who is in pain and you're doing as a you know personal trainer manual therapy on an area that's in pain. I'm, I'm not so sure that that's that's within your scope. I understand you want to help that person so it comes from a good place, right? But I'm not so sure that legally you are allowed to do that. And that's where I feel like we all have to get off of our thrones and just work together. I mean, I would love – I love knowing the chiropractors in my area. I love knowing the athletic trainers. I love knowing the strength coaches because all of us have a unique skill set to help people. It's just when we all sit there and say, well, I can do all this stuff on my own. I think we all get into trouble. And you know that the idea of collaborating just works so much better for everybody really.
0: Yeah, because I kind of look at it as like, if you're really good at coaching, why kind of be okay at scraping with the rock tape blade? Where you can get a PT or a chiro that's been doing it for years, that's really good at it, that probably get a better you know result from it. And then that chiro can se- or PT can send you this patient that, when they're better to you because you're better at coaching. And now you have this like almost holistic approach of you have like this team. Around this one patient and person to get better faster.
1: Exactly, and the reality is, if you're sending it to the person who's the best at it, you're going to get a better result. And then you, as the you know personal trainer PT, you're going to win because your patient is going to come back, or client, and they're going to be like, "Oh my gosh, the person you sent me to, man, I feel great!" And all of a sudden, now you progress them faster than you originally would have been able to. And it's just, it's hard for people to see that. I think sometimes, you know, we tend to just kind of sit in our camps and say the way I do it is best.
0: Yeah. Um, so we're coming up to the end of this. So maybe for the very last question, tell the audience where they can find you online, what projects you have coming out, and maybe if you have any new articles that are gonna blow up the internet, let us know.
1: <laughs> well, uh, so I have nothing in the works yet. Um, I am kinda of thinking back and trying to, to figure out a way that I do wanna write a little bit more and I, I think I wanna write down the pathway of kinda of like what this article had to do with where it's kind of the these, you know, connections between rehab and performance and and helping people, you know, kind of understand the medical side of things, because I think that's the hardest part. You know, there's the training side and the medical side. Um, I am on Facebook, I am on Instagram, JFarns Ten, which is a very old nickname from way back in high school that I just <laughs> haven't changed. Um, I am working on I do my clinical practice and then I also am spending some time seeing clients kind of outside that in a kind of non-insurance model, which just kind of gives me that time to give them that one-on-one care that I think everyone wins with. Um, and hopefully I'm going to be starting up a website and a blog sometime in the near future, because again, I love sharing this information with people and I think it helps people out a lot.
0: Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thanks, dude. It was nice to talk to you. Have a good one. Okay. So that's going to wrap up. Episode 174 with Dr. Justin Farnsworth. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I'm going to say this. Click the show notes right now. Don't even bother listening to the rest of what I'm about to say. Click the show notes. Click the link to add me on Facebook because I post a lot of great stuff on rehab, training, nutrition, you name it, on my personal Facebook page and Facebook uh, fan page. So click the link, add me on Facebook, and I will message you and tell you what's up. How are you? What's going on? Because I like to connect with as many people as possible. So right now, go click the show notes, click the Facebook link, add me on Facebook, and you will get more value than just this podcast as you're scrolling through mindlessly on your Facebook feed. So at least you can see some fitness and health stuff. But that is it for me. Until next time, you guys, reach out, say hello, ask a question, and I'm more than happy to help you on your fitness and health journey. Until next week, you guys.